And we are live from the Empire of Lies, a bastion of truth and free speech in the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm Lee Stranahan. This is the backstory. And this is a Truth Tuesday. We're joined by guest co-host Jason Goodman from Crowdsource the Truth. Is Jason there? Yes. How are you, Lee? Good, Jason. How are you doing? Pretty good. Now, our producer, Rod from Philly. Rod, why don't you tell us who's on the show today? I know you've got two great, we've got two brand new guests, Jason. And so, Rod, tell us who's on in the first hour and second hour. Uh, in the first hour and a few minutes, we're going to have uh, Professor Richard Moomer. Uh He's a former professor of uh, economy in, in Tokyo. He's uh, also, I believe, teaching, or he was previously teaching at Oxford. So, uh, we're glad to have him on. And then uh, we have on a, uh, found this clip of a, uh, a father in New York City who, his son, his sons were robbed, the bicycle, and uh, so he went, took care of it himself, but not, you know, not, not in the way people would think of a violent way. He was able to, to de-escalate the situation and get this bike back. His name is uh, Carmelo. He's coming with us from New York City, and uh, he's going to come and talk about us, about the issues that are going on in New York City with young gang members and, you know, uh, assaulting other youths and making it, you know, just uncomfortable for everybody. And Jason, you're a New Yorker. Yeah, I saw the video. Yeah, and and what do you think? I mean, I think it's a sad state of affairs that a father has to go out and enforce the law to protect his sons, and the NYPD can't do that. I don't understand what the point of the NYPD is if this individual needs to put himself in danger. I mean, those gang members were a lot younger than him, but there were many of them. It's an incredible display. This guy is an amazing diplomat to be able to get that bike back. I mean, when I was watching the video, I was almost certain somebody was going to get stomped. And we'll be talking to Carmel about that in the second hour, along with taking your calls, 202-521-1320. Jason, what's the name of the show? The Backstory. Now, our first guest will be talking about some of the issues around Davos, the WEF World Economic Forum in Davos. Does this seem to you, Jason, that more people are paying attention to Davos this year than you've ever seen? Absolutely, Lee. I think that, you know, when you look back through the timeline of history, recent history, there was a time when it was like NBC, CBS, ABC. And if Walter Cronkite Walter Cronkite didn't say it, it didn't happen. And, you know, when Alex Jones created InfoWars, one of the first breakthrough things that he did was to expose the Bohemian Grove. And he went to Davos, I believe, and he's cornering all these guys and asking them questions. It really did wake people up to the fact that this is happening. And you wouldn't have, you know, Jack Posobiec going to Davos or uh, certainly not crowdsource the truth if Alex Jones hadn't paved the way. So definitely people are paying more attention to all of these kind of things. And I think part of why they're paying attention is these unlikely groups have more impact on our lives than ever, don't they? Well, that's just it, is that I was going to add, I hope it's not too late, because in addition to the rise of independent media and the technology that allows us to do this kind of stuff, we also need to note that Perestroika in the 1990s, you didn't have Sputnik Radio in the United States in 1990. So as things have advanced, people have definitely uh, perked their ears up. And I think you're right. Part of the reason is that these groups have taken 
so much power while everybody wasn't paying attention that it's gotten us to where we are right now. So I'm very thankful that Sputnik Radio lets us speak the truth without censoring us. Me too. And because this group is unelected, it's hard to know how to take them on. What do you think about that, Jason? Well, it is very hard. And, you know, we recently, Lee, you and I have been talking a lot about the Disinformation Governance Board, which is another unelected body that just announced itself and announced its intention to basically stomp on the First Amendment, trample the Constitution, and take our rights. And, you know, something I wanted to share with you is that as a result of my research into the Disinformation Governance Board, I've discovered another unelected body that exists within the United States. Have you ever heard, Lee, of the White House Military Office? Is something that has existed for, um, I believe it was created in about 1957. Even if you just look it up on Wikipedia, the White House Military Office is a department within the White House that provides military support for White House functions, including food service, presidential transportation, medical support, emergency medical services, hospitality services, and all kinds of things. It, it basically controls Air Force One. It controls any medical attention that the president has. Uh, it, uh, it has absorbed all these other agencies that were created at different times. So for instance, the White House military office as it presently stands is an amalgamation of several previously independent agencies. The, the Marine Helicopter Squadron, the Presidential Airlift Group, the White House Communications Agency, the White House Medical Unit, the White House Mess Unit, the White House Transportation Agency. How you doing, Lee? Well, I'm fine. I'm listening to you. Yeah. So this really drew my attention because we don't know uh, who's in control of this thing. Now, it was previously chaired uh, by someone who is married to a highly placed fellow at one of these NGOs. I don't want to go into too much detail yet because I want to find out more about it. But that guy left in January of 2021. And when you look at the website for the White House military office right now, it says that the director is to be determined. So from January until today, this thing is the flying Dutchman of unelected White House boards or whatever it is that can do all these things to interact with the president. And the thing that really caught my attention is this White House communications agency, because that was originally known as the White House Signal Corps, which sounds quite military and intelligence oriented. And then it became the White House Signal Detachment. And it basically, it was officially formed by the United States Department of War on the 25th of March in 1942 under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Didn't he also create the CIA late? They provide mobile radio, teletype, telegraph, telephone, and cryptographic aids to the White House. Oh, and also this uh, White House military office controls Camp David. So the question in my mind is, first of all, who's in charge of this thing? Second of all, when Adam Sharp, current CEO of the Emmys, was uh, working at Twitter as the head of news, government, and politics, or uh, news, government, and elections, he created 
the Twitter town hall, which famously was the first time in history that the U.S. president communicated with the public through Twitter, is Twitter and, and any interactions between the White House and Twitter, is that governed by this White House military office? And if so, did they determine, hey, we need a disinformation governance board in the Department of Homeland Security, and did they create that thing? We don't know what this unelected, headless thing is doing. Great report, Jason. We'll be talking more about that later. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about Davos with our first guest. Yes. On the backstory. Here we are on the backstory, and we have uh, Jason Goodman, who is a co-host. And in a few minutes, we'll have our guest, Professor Richard Warner. Uh, Lee's handling the situation right now, and he'll be back. But you're listening to the backstory. Okay, I expected a splash there. So, so Rod, um, this video that you had of the father, he's going to be coming on later. I think people are going to be really interested to that, uh, to hear that, and hear what he has to say. I'm very interested to hear what he has to say. That was amazing diplomacy by him and uh it's going to be it's going to be worthwhile for everybody to hear how that was handled you know i was just on a walk out in new york city speaking to a couple of police officers because not long ago eric adams had said that as he rides the subway he sees so many police officers on their phones and i have observed this as well now the response from the nypd union was that these are department-issued phones and that the police are supposed to be using these phones. And it does, it does seem to be correct that through 2015 and then 2018, there were programs for the NYPD to distribute smartphones. First, Microsoft provided phones, which I guess that's Windows phones, so it makes sense that they'd use the stupidest operating system that there are no applications for and has no support in the public, but they've eventually switched them over to iPhones. And the police that I ask on the streets tell me, no, they're not going on Tinder. They're not texting their girlfriends. They're not on Twitter. They're doing department stuff. But I don't think that's true. And uh, Eric Adams is apparently totally unaware of this program. So I'm interested in finding out more about what it is that the NYPD is doing with these smartphones. And frankly, if they've been issued to the 36,000 police officers in New York City since 2015 and this latest iteration since 2018, we should have a fair body of data by which we can judge the effectiveness of the smartphone program. Has it helped NYPD reduce crime in New York City or is it merely just a multi-million dollar program to deploy phones that are now going to require an IT department, certainly tech support for individual officers? They tell me there are department-issued apps, so that's going to mean those are going to need to stay current with the operating system. They're going to need to be constantly developed to keep any exploits out so that malicious hackers cannot penetrate the security of these NYPD phones. And basically, nobody at the NYPD, obviously officers on the street, aren't necessarily the appropriate channel of communication to the public. But when I attended a community meeting at the 6th Precinct here, no answers were provided. I was told to stop talking. It was, a, it was a Zoom meeting, so I was put on mute. 
And I then called the sixth precinct afterwards and said I wanted to speak to the captain. And the captain wasn't there. I was told that he would get back to me. And it's been almost a month and he hasn't. So I'm, first of all, very proud of this father who was able to get justice without involving himself or anyone else in violence in his neighborhood. But I'm also concerned for fathers and their sons and mothers and their daughters and whoever else is out there who are now placed in a situation where we've had such a deterioration of law and order in our society that fathers are forced to do this, put themselves at risk. What do we need the police for if they're just going to stand around texting on the iPhone and leave yeah, it to yeah. fathers to do this? Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you, Jason. Uh, we definitely have to hone in on police departments, you know, like the N NYPD and things that, you know, money's being wasted on. And, you know, what is the uh, what is the use of it? And we have no uh, governing body over there. But we have our guest. We have our guest on right now, uh, Professor Richard War Richard Warner. And uh, we want to welcome uh, our first time guest, Professor, uh, Professor Warner. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Wonderful well, to have you, thank Professor. You. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Our original host, uh, Lee Stranahan's uh, having a little issue right now, but he'll be on in a little bit. But um, I wanted to uh, get a little bit of your background. I think you had a uh, amazing biography. You've been uh, in Tokyo, you've been Oxford and all these other places. Uh, tell our audience a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, depends what you're interested in. I've, I've done quite a few things in a few countries. Um, I, uh, yes, as, as you said, I mean, I, I was at Oxford. I did my first degree at the London School of Economics. There I learned the official economics. Um, and then I went to Japan and saw reality. And uh, and then also I realized that what they taught me wasn't really, um, you know, the truth. It wasn't the fact. And the, the official economics is not actually derived from a scientific uh, research approach. It's essentially made up. It's made up stuff. You wouldn't believe it. But I adopted the scientific approach, which means uh, you have to look at the facts, at the data. And uh, so then I started to um, unpick all this official economics, the mainstream economics, and uh, build what I call scientific economics. Um, in terms of uh, positions, first I was then back at Oxford as a um, a doctoral research fellow at the Institute of Economics and Statistics. Then I um, was in Tokyo at Jardine Fleming Securities um, as chief economist. Um, essentially, that happened because while I was doing my doctoral research, I'd already spent some time in Japan um, at the Bank of Japan, at the Ministry of Finance there, at the Japan Development Bank, and I'd um, uncovered the enormous um, power that banks have, which economists totally leave out. Of course, that's for a reason, but they, they don't have banks in their economic theories and their economic models. And um, I found out just how and also why banks are so powerful and how this mechanism works and developed an economic um, model and explanations that could explain what was happening. And of course, big things were happening. Um, I, I left Japan um, when I was at the Japan Development Bank as the first Shimomura Fellow in 1991, coming back to Oxford. And at that time, the the central bank was just 
lowering interest rates for the first time. They'd raised them before to slow um, the economy a bit, and they were just lowering it. And so, and, and stock markets had already fallen quite a bit. So most people are saying, ah, oh, they're lowering rates. That's it. Now buy Japanese stocks and all the international investment um, analysts and, and strategists were saying buy Japanese stocks. Um, but I, when I came back to Oxford at that time, I said the opposite. I predicted that, um, you sh- well, you should not buy Japanese stocks. Um, at that time, the top 20 banks in the world were all Japanese. Um, and people were talking about Japan taking over the world. You know, the 80s, Japanese money was buying up everything, it seemed. And Japanese banks everywhere. Economic growth was still, at that time in 91, 7%. And so they thought, if you lower interest rates, the stock market is going to go up a lot because the economy is doing so well. But I came out with my forecast based on my empirical research, data-based uh, research, and I said that um, Japanese banks are likely to go bankrupt, and Japan is likely to move into the biggest recession since the Great Depression. Sell Japanese stocks, <laughs> and I also went out. Didn't, didn't that happen in 1991? There was a huge crash of the Japanese economy, wasn't there? Well, they had, a, they had yes, but it the crash was essentially dragged out over two decades. But in huh. 91, nobody, nobody was aware. Nobody realized this was going to happen. So for the first few years, people were saying, this guy's crazy. Are you sure you were in Japan? Surely right. you have no idea. You're saying Japan is going to implode? I mean, total nonsense. This happened until at least 1997. So it took another six huh. years for people to realize the cotton on that actually Japan was going to be in, a, in dire straits. The banking crisis really was at its worst point in 2003. So that took another um, decade, more than a decade, really. Um, it was a slow motion implosion in the banking system and economic growth ground to hold. And it turned out to be you know, the worst recession since the Great Depression, as I had warned. Of course, the whole thing was not actually necessary. It could have been totally avoidable. And I also made some proposals when I was back in Tokyo as chief economist on how to quickly get out. And I proposed a new monetary policy, which I called quantitative easing. Oh. In the, in the Nikkei, the Nihon Keizai Shimbun in Japanese in 1995. And uh-huh. you may have heard this expression since, I guess. <laughs> but in the- yeah, well, yeah, they do it all the time in the United States. But let me ask you this, Professor. In Japan, don't, I mean, I hope this isn't offensive, but don't they consider you or me gaijin and not take advice from somebody like us who isn't Japanese? Yes, yeah, you're absolutely right. We are gaijin, which means foreigner, outside person. Um, And yeah, they're they're somewhat reluctant to take advice from us. That's very true. Mm -hmm. Give me quite a platform in the media. So I was, you know, uh, quite well represented on the media, being interviewed also on television a lot um, in Japanese. Um, and and I published a lot of Japanese. Then my in 2001, my book on the Bank of Japan and its involvement in um, in actually creating this biggest asset bubble that Japan had ever seen in the 80s, and then imploding it and throwing the economy into this huge depression. This was done by the Bank of Japan, and I, I explained the whole mechanism how the Bank of Japan did it on purpose and why. 
And so that became an instant number one bestseller in Japan. Um, it, it outsold Harry Potter, which was the other book that oh, wow. very well for six weeks. Uh, because it was, you know, it's not just a business book. It was as a general bestseller beating Harry Potter, which was quite an exciting time. So it was, you know, I had a big platform then um, in the media. But despite all that, and I was asked by the government and was in parliament presenting. I was actually made a member of various advisory panels to the finance ministry and also parliamentary group on central bank reform. However, despite all that, they never really adopted any of the policies, um, even the quantitative easing that are recommended. Um, actually, what they did, the Bank of Japan said, oh, this quantitative easing, that's nonsense. It's not going to work. And they kept saying this for a few years. And then 2001, they said, oh, okay, then we'll, we'll try this quantitative easing, but it's not going to work. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> when they announced that they're going to adopt it, they also said it's not going to work. And then what they did is they actually did something else. They did not do the quantitative easing that I recommended. My definition is an expansion in bank credit creation that gives you um, the you know the money creation and increased effective uh, um, transaction spending that you need in this situation where the banking system is imploding and um, money supply shrinking. Um, but they didn't do that. They didn't expand bank credit. Essentially, bank credit for GDP transactions is what you need to um, expand. They didn't do that. They did simple, traditional, monetarist, high-powered money expansion and increased base money, monetary-based, high-powered money. These are all the same names. I mean, different names for the same thing, which is essentially the central bank gives big reserves to the banks which really means the central bank is moving money into the bank's accounts at the central bank, and that's it. It's quite obvious that mm -hmm. it help the economy, right? <laughs> because right. this is money out. It's just one pocket to another, right? This, so this is in your book, Princes of the Yen, or it's in one of the Japanese language books? It is in Princes of the Yen. Um, and, and then, you know, they, and by, by 2006, they then said, oh, see, we tried it and it didn't work. And so they stopped it. Hmm. Wow. QE, what they call QE. But it wasn't the real QE, which, of course, I criticized a lot. And I said, this is not QE. You're doing the wrong way. Why are you doing this? I already told you high-powered money expansion doesn't work. The monetary station doesn't work. And then when the 2008 financial crisis hit two years later, I was amazed to find that the Bank of England then wanted to introduce quantitative easing. <laughs> right. And so did the United States, right? I mean, a lot of, I, I am very, I don't, I'm not an economist. So forgive me if I ask an ignorant question, but it seems like quantitative easing, as I understand it, is essentially printing more money, putting more money in circulation to boost the economy and consumer spending and things like this. And we've done a lot of that in the United States, which a lot of people now think has played a role in the inflation that we're seeing. How, or I should say, do you see any parallels in the United States now that remind you of what you saw in Japan in 2001? What, what, happened, um, what happened when the Japanese introduced QE is actually um, similar to the QE 
central banks introduced in 2008, which is a type of central bank transaction that does not create inflation and that does not weaken the currency, which is why in 2008, when the Federal Reserve became hyperactive, a lot of people, traditional analysts and forecasters were saying, oh, this is going to create inflation, they're printing money, this is going to cause um, the dollar to weaken. Yeah. It happened. And I told people at the time, no, this is not, they're not actually creating money. They're just rebooking. It's a rebooking exercise between the central bank and the banks. That's not going to create money. And there won't be inflation. And it didn't happen. But then you see what has been very different is the 2020 central bank actions in most of these economies and also in the U.S. And I want, in, in May 2020, you know, I'm out there on Twitter saying that we're definitely going to have significant inflation. Usually takes 12 to 18 months. And so, you know, it's happening. It is happening now, as I've been warning. Why? What's the On the surface, yeah, why? It used to be a repeat. They did more of what they did in 2008, what they called QE, quantitative easing. But it's not. It's very different. Um, then they didn't increase... Well, also, what's different is the, the state of the banking system. Of course, you have to remember, 2008, the banking system has shut, had shut down. Bank credit creation was shrinking. And the central bank then did its, its QE. In that sort of situation, because the banking sector creates much more money and is, is a multiple in terms of size of the central bank. I mean, there's 5,000 banks in the U.S., right? Um, yeah. They were shrinking, and then the Fed can do a lot, and still the money supply will still be shrinking or is not rising. That was the situation then. But, and then so actually what the Fed in 2008 did was slightly smarter than other central banks at the time, and is closer to what I'd recommended, because my QE is an expansion in bank credit, and I'd already also said in Japan in the 90s, Central banks should take the non-performing assets away from the banks by buying them up at face value. And Bernanke was part of these debates at the time as an, as an academic. And that's what he did in 2008. In mm -hmm. 2008, he bought the non-performing assets of the big banks. As a result, the balance sheets were cleaned up and they then increased lending and then bank credit rose. And that's why the economy then recovered first in the U.S. It took many years for European economies to recover after the 2008 crisis. So that was then, but it didn't lead to inflation because we didn't actually have a, an, an excessive expansion in, in money creation in, in the economy and GDP circulation. But in 2020, is a very different story. Then bank credit was already very strong. That's the first point. So already the normal money creation through the banking system was already at a very fast pace. But on right. top of that, the central bank then also stepped in and they did something that's different from 2008. They forced the banks to increase their money creation even more. It was like through more loans, the banking system. Um, well, essentially, by it's a technical operation, but the central bank can do that. They can purchase assets from the banks, um, sorry, from the non banks and that forces the banks to create credit because as the non-banks, you know, it's essentially anyone who are, who's holding treasuries, whether it's pension funds or um, institutional investors, 
the Federal Reserve is buying those bonds from the treasuries and they then get credited in their bank accounts with central bank credit. And as a result, the banks now have more bank credit injected into the economy. And that's what happened in 2020. And so that's why there was an expansion in bank credit in 2020, which was dramatic, dramatic, because it was really very strong and then was turbocharged by the Fed. But at the same time, governments had Soviet-style restrictions in many, um, in many countries. And as a result, you know, you're restricting supply while you're boosting demand through money creation. Well, well let's talk about that for a second, because I, I want to make sure we don't get into too deep into the economic area that maybe is beyond our listeners, because I think a lot of people are looking at what's happening in their own towns and thinking about what's going on in the United States and also relative to Russia. I've noticed every single day the ruble, which Joe Biden intended to punish through these economic sanctions, it's hitting all-time highs, 57 rubles, buys $1 now. I think it was 75 when this war started. So it doesn't seem that these economic sanctions against Russia are having the effect that Joe Biden wanted it to. Is that going to impact inflation in the United States, or what do you think about all this? Yes, well— First of all, why is the ruble so strong? It's the best performing currency in the world this year. Wow. And of course, initially when the war started, the ruble collapsed and it, it mm-hmm. was a terrible performer. It went to 140 rubles, yeah. one US dollar, which is like un- unprecedented, never been that yeah. in history. And that would have been a fantastic moment to buy the ruble. <laughs> the ruble. Yep. It was really long at the time, but you know, um, one should have doubled up because then it shot up from 140 to now, yeah, 57 or something. Mm-hmm. More than doubled in value. Why? What happened? Well, it all happened with one change in policy, a very simple change in policy when um, President Putin announced that Russia will henceforth only sell its it's oil and gas exports against ruble. Right. That created huge demand for the ruble. Now, the policy actually is really copying something that the United States of America did. The petrodollar. Back to ni- yes. So it, it, when you, if you go back to 1971, that's when President Nixon went on television and announced to the world that the United States was defaulting. It was defaulting on its obligations to the rest of the world to change dollars into gold at the fixed, you know, gold um, exchange rate system we had at the time in the world. The US dollar was linked to gold and everyone else linked their currency to the US dollar. That was the Bretton Woods system since the Second World War until 1971. But suddenly, the U.S. said, oh, we're not going to um, come come good on our promise that you can change dollars into gold. Of course, the moment Nixon said that, the dollar collapsed. It fell, yeah. fell and fell. And so then the U.S. people were thinking, okay, how can we back the dollar? And they came up with a quite a clever but also... 
Yeah, I was going to say, choose your adjective carefully, Professor. <laughs> yeah, quite clever, but in many ways, quite disastrous policy. Suicidal, yes. Exactly. Well, what they, because their problem was that the U.S. had this huge trade deficit. Of course, today is even even bigger. But then it was really an unprecedented deficit, and the big trade surplus countries were Germany and Japan. And the problem was they weren't buying enough from America. They didn't need as much as America would have liked to sell to them. So then the um, the thinkers behind this figured out, okay, what does Japan need? What does Germany need? Oh, they need oil. All right, here's the plan. We go to Saudi Arabia, the biggest oil exporter in the world, the biggest oil producer in the world. And essentially the United States government said, we'll have a deal. We protect the ruling family with U.S. troops, U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia to prop up the government has been in, in place ever since in exchange for you guys selling your oil only against the U.S. dollar. And by the way, you have to reinvest 80% of your oil proceeds in U.S. treasuries, which, they've, which they did. So then, and also compel all other members of OPEC, every nation trading oil, buying or selling, dollars only, and then Saudi uses the money to buy up U.S. debt. It's a Ponzi scheme, isn't it? Yes, but it also turned the dollar into the petrodollar, and that then meant the dollar was not falling anymore. It stabilized and started to go up. So that, that stabilized the currency because the dollar now had a backing – namely oil, and oil was something, was like a currency, something everyone needed. Right. Now we're in a different phase where um, a lot of these international global organizations are saying we should stop using fossil fuels, and um, they want to phase them out. That means you need, you need to change the, the financial system, and they want to move away from the petrodollar. Well, um, Russia did the opposite. It essentially copied the U.S. trick of saying, you know, we're, we're going to strengthen our currency by um, making sure that fossil fuels will be sold in our currency. And that's what Russia did. So they announced, we'll only sell you oil and gas if you, if you pay us in rubles. And since then, the, the ruble has just shot up and gone up and up. And I think it's still undervalued. It's still going to rise further. Wow. With that, of course, Russia has a strong economy. It's got, it's got everything. It's got all the resources you need uh, of all sorts of types of, you know, mineral resources, and it's got, it's the biggest land uh, mass in in the world. It's the biggest country by land uh, surface um, in the world. Well, I have a question, Professor, because I'm glad that you well, well, brought this up. Jason, can oh, I bring one thing? Yeah. Yes. In by the way, Professor, thanks for being on the show. In the headlines today, having me, thank you. Uh, yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, Joe Biden is over in Asia, and he's put together this group of twelve countries, including Japan, including South Korea, and including India. And apparently, it's designed to be an economic growth to hedge against China. But as I understand, a a month. A few months ago, China put together a group, and India and Japan and some of those countries are in that group. So what's 
What's the plan? Was Joe Biden, does he have a, a plan here? And am, I, and am I correct that there's a competing, not necessarily competing, but sort of complementary group that's pro-China? Yeah. Currently? That's exactly, that's exactly right. So, so there are these two competing groups and. Oh no, I just heard a click. Did we lose the professor or did I get cut off? No, I hear you, Jason. I think we lost Professor Werner. Yeah, I think we lost. Oh no, that's too bad. Because see, I wanted to ask him, Lee. He'll he'll be, he'll be back, but. Yeah, I'm glad he brought up this whole thing with uh, Russia sort of mirroring the petrodollar because the important difference that I see, and I'm not sure what it's going to mean in terms of the economics, is that Russia didn't go to a third party to say, hey, you have to sell your oil for our currency and we will protect you in exchange. Because to me, Lee, that sounds a little bit like that scene in Godfather 2 where they say, hey, uh, you know, your store, your flower shop needs to pay us protection money. And by the way, if you don't, we're going to burn it down. So well, Russia's not Russia, relying on a third party. No, and it did take a lot of political will to get – some countries said they absolutely would not do it. But soon they buckled under pressure. Yeah, as and soon the as pressure, the temperature got cold. Russia said, we just won't sell to you. And Russia has a point. They want to deal with economic things with security. Designated some countries as friendly and some as unfriendly. Right. And with unfriendly companies, countries, they're saying basically, we'll deal with you on our terms. We have no problem doing business with you. Right. Okay, Professor, welcome back. You're you're talking about these competing groups in Asia. Go ahead, Professor. Now, first of all, the, the, the U.S. group, you know, the, the U.S. strategy in Asia has always been, um, or certainly since the Second World War, has been to make sure that the U.S. is close to Japan and that there is animosity between Japan and China. So, you know, the, the, the Asia uh, strategists in the State Department have always worked hard when they talk to the Japanese to also whisper into their ear, oh, the Chinese, they really hate Japanese. It's the Second World War, isn't it? Uh, it's such a pity, but they really hate you guys. And they tell the Chinese, you know, oh, the Japanese really hate you guys. <laughs> because essentially the worst case scenario for the U.S. Um, foreign policy uh, strategists is if China and Japan work together. And of course, there's American troops in Japan, so it's you know Japan is is being prevented from working too closely together with China. But Japan has invested a lot in China. Uh, China has copied a lot of the economic systems that it used to be very successful from Japan. China does appreciate Japan very much. It's you know it's a close neighbor. It's a highly successful economy. That's where a lot of the um, the ideas on how to run the economy came from. So actually, the reality is there is much more affinity between Japan and China than the U.S. You know, State Department strategists would like to uh, to believe. And that's what we're seeing. That China, of course, has been um, doing diplomacy. There are many Asian countries that, of course, want to work closely with China as well. 
And essentially, they, you know, many countries want to work with, with both groups. They, they're happy to work with America, um, but also with China. And so it's not, unfortunately, for, for the State Department as simple as it used to be. There's the good guys and there's the bad guys. Um, essentially, countries want to work with everyone in Asia now, and that includes China. And the animosity is not really there anymore. China is a massive economic power, a massive political and military power. Uh, it's used its military might in a very restrained way, we have to say, unlike you know all the, the U.S. military bases uh, all across the place and also in Asia. So people are not really afraid of China because they know that China is quite sort of self-restrained and is not is not really aggressive, despite what you may read in the mainstream media about about China. And China has, has done a lot of economic diplomacy. It's invested a lot in in other Asian countries. It's got the Belt and Road Initiative, which is about infrastructure investment, helping countries to build up their infrastructures. Um, and and so that's the reality. So I think the Biden administration will find that. You know, they, even though they would love to have a clear-cut group that is sort of um, against China, in reality, it doesn't really exist anymore. And meanwhile, now that President Biden's over in Asia, he and foreign policy advisor Jake Sullivan have been quite aggressive against China. They've said that they will go to war with China, essentially, use military force if China gets involved in Taiwan more. So they walked it back. How is that playing economically? Yes, those threats. Politics. Yes, thank you. So first on the politics. Before we come to the economics, the politics does seem very similar to what's been happening in Ukraine, where, of course, since the 2014 CIA coup d'état. Um, and, and take over. Um, they've been prodding Russia as if they're really keen on on having a war with Russia, um, yeah. and, and and almost simultaneously they're doing the same thing now with China. I mean, when uh, when the Russians uh, tanks tanks and so on moved into Ukraine, already then there were these stories. Ah, the same thing is now going to happen in 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 Asia. China is going to move into Taiwan. Where did that come from? <laughs> they're constantly saying it, and then they're moving in with ships, um, U.S. ships, very close to Taiwan, close to China. These are all, I mean, China perceives that as a provocation. Yeah. And the rhetoric, of course, has been stepped up, uh, suddenly talking about China um, now invading, about to invade Taiwan, um, as if that's really what they want, that they would like to happen which seems crazy because, I mean, we don't really need a major international war. We don't need the Third World War with Russia and China on one side and, and whoever is on the other side. I mean, this this is madness. It would be so destructive for everyone. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, we don't see enough efforts to do the opposite and just have peaceful cooperation. Now, that seems to be, though, what people want and also governments in Asia, they want peaceful cooperation. So let's just tone down and dial back the, the, the saber rattling and 
And talk about cooperation, developing, raising quality of life and living standards, you know, boosting the economy, having less unemployment, getting rid of poverty. There's many things we can do. Why isn't that more important? Yeah. If I could take you back, Professor, to the comments you were making about the petro-ruble mirroring the petrodollar, how do you anticipate Russia's different approach? In other words, Russia is not creating a Ponzi scheme with a third party by offering protection to Saudi Arabia. They're selling their own resources, creating essentially a commodity-based economy where the United States used the petrodollar to create a deficit spending economy. What do you anticipate these different approaches will mean for the future of the economies of the United States and Russia. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that, that, that is a difference. And of course, the obvious first uh, difference is that you don't need, as, as a result of the Russian strategy, you don't need constant wars in the Middle East right. to, to, um, to cajole everyone to keep selling oil only against the U.S. dollar. You know, we know that that's how... Saddam Hussein. That's why he was, in the end, um, and Gaddafi, and Gaddafi the same because they had made plans to and were about to sell oil or had begun to sell oil against the euro. You do think, oh, that's such a minor thing, but no, no, that that is a red line. That that was a red line, and with Russia, so a lot of these Middle Eastern wars are connected to this, whereas with Russia, that's not necessary because Russia has the resources and has many types of uh, natural resources, mineral resources. But on top, Russia has also a highly educated workforce. It has a lot of technology. Um, and of course, it can, it can trade with many other countries that are happy to trade with Russia because the sanctions on Russia are only imposed by mostly by Europe, Western Europe, um, and, 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 you know, North America to some extent. And that's about it. Most other countries continue to trade with Russia. Um, this goes back to the other doctrine of U.S. foreign policies. One is that to make sure that Japan and China don't work together. And the other one, it's like the older one, which, which they took over from, from the British, is to make sure that Russia does not cooperate with Germany. And so here, and that explains why Ukraine was so important, because it makes Russia look so bad. And then, you know, the propaganda has been stepped up. Oh, this is completely, um, you know, unwarranted aggression from Russia, as if nothing had happened before, as if in the previous eight years, um, you know, the, the Ukrainian government had not been bombing its own people in the Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, because Ukraine, of course, is multi-ethnic. You've got ethnic Russians in Ukraine, millions, and they've been shot at for years, and, and many civilians have been killed there. But that doesn't get covered in the mainstream media. Um, instead, now we have this official storyline, oh, look at these bad Russians. They're so bad and aggressive, and they're doing all this. And as a result, now we have these sanctions and you can drive this artificial wedge now between Russia and Western Europe. And that was really the goal. So that's why, that is precisely why the same type of uh, State Department foreign policy strategists are, are talking about Taiwan. They'd love to do the same now in Asia and they'd love to 
make China look really bad by making some prodding them into doing some um, aggressive move on Taiwan and then making sure that there will be a big wall um, around China and, and Japan and, and other countries will step away and, and, and become antagonistic against China. Um, that, I think, is the logic, but it's, it is flawed logic because um, too many people realize that there's an artificial separation that's created and Russia is not quite as bad as the propaganda, the Western propaganda makes it out to be. They're just looking after ethnic Russians that have been um, persecuted um, quite badly in Ukraine since this um, takeover of the government, of the elected government being driven out and, and some other people being put in power under U.S. Um, involvement in 2014. And so, um, yeah, it's... The reality is going to um, become apparent to more and more people. And I think in Asia, this is also quite clear because China, you know, the, the, the propaganda there has never been so successful. So China doesn't have this bad reputation that the policy, foreign policy strategists would like it to have in Asia. And a lot of people are saying that Europe is headed for real trouble with high petrol prices, as well as food shortages. What do you think about that, Professor? Yes, and also actually, I just realized I haven't answered the second part of your question. Well, the main question was about the economics in, in Asia um, and the economic impact um, of this, this foreign policy in Asia. I mean, at the moment, the economic impact there is limited. But in Europe, and come back to, to your um, question now, um, the impact is enormous. And I think the, there is a connection because the Asian countries now, they're, they're watching this in horror. They're seeing what America is doing to its allies. America is destroying the European, the Western European economies by forcing Western Europe to now become independent of Russian gas imports when everything had been geared up to use the very efficient, very low cost, and 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 you know very easily available because it's very close in close proximity Russian energy, you suddenly cut this off. You you're about to destroy the Western European economies. You've only seen the beginning. Inflation is of course was as we said earlier, the initial inflation boost or the the bulk of the inflation is due to the money creation that happened in 2020 under these. Uh, misguided COVID policies. Uh, but of course, now with sanctions, energy costs will go up. Um, but we haven't seen that yet. This is not yet uh, shown properly in prices because so far, of course, Germany and other countries have not stopped getting energy from Russia because they can't. They're just so dependent on it. But they've now obliged themselves, okay, by the end of the year, we'll reduce Russian um, energy imports by more than half, and they want to get rid of um, Russian energy imports entirely. Um, of course, if you did that, energy prices would shoot up much more for the consumer. And then you will turn this already high inflation, which is essentially double-digit inflation, most likely into hyperinflation, um, totally unnecessarily. 
And the Asians are watching this. And wow, this is happening just because America wants this to happen. It's squeezing its allies. No, you must cut off your your arms and your legs because you're, you're working with Russia here on energy. That mustn't happen. Um, and sacrifice the economies. Do you think the Asian countries will want to copy that? I don't think so. It'll be much harder to try to replicate the same in Asia. Um, and, and Asians, you know, there's, there's lots of um, overseas Chinese in Asia. And this, this often gets, gets forgotten that, you know, key wealthy uh, entrepreneurs, business, the big business conglomerates, the core families in most of the um, Southeast Asian countries are, are Chinese, ethnic Chinese, you know, whether it's in Thailand um, or in Malaysia anyway, or in Indonesia and so on. And they're all about making money. That's what they're focusing on. They like this, you know, um, a more free market capitalism. They don't want the European style Sovietization of the economy because everything now has to be a planned economy because free market is not allowed because there's too much Russia in the free market. So we have all these restrictions now. Plus, of course, you add your green economy restrictions um, and soon it's a planned economy. That's going to be very hard to persuade the, the, you know, the, the entrepreneurs in Asia to fall for that, I tell you. And where do you see the role of India here? Because it's obviously a very populous country. How powerful is India as an economic player? Um, certainly, it's, it is an important political player because of its size, um, you know, second largest population in the world after China, and um, and as a as you know as a democracy, as they always say the largest democracy in the world. Um, and economically, of course, it's also a major player. Um, it's been very successful in developing its economy by ignoring the World Bank advice on how to develop a country. Very early, it switched resources to boost the education system dramatically and invested a lot in getting a lot of scientists trained um, a lot of PhDs, then it became a leader in IT and software. So, you know, it is a major player. And in fact, India, it will be quite important what India does. Um, in, in recent years, India had been quite um, close to U.S. policy, but I don't think it will uncritically just follow what the State Department is, is putting out here. Um, it is uh, a neighbor of China. There is some friction with China, but I don't think India wants to increase that friction. And um, I think it will be hard to create this front line where there's the U.S. with India on its side, um, you know, against an, an antagonistic enemy called China. Um, I think India will want to be much more have a much more differentiated foreign policy and also economic policies. And Professor, we're out of time now. Thank you so much. Fantastic appearance talking about so many important issues and hey, explaining them so clearly. Thank Jason, great job, right? Yeah, thank you. Yes, Professor, very interesting conversation. I want to hear more about the London School of Economics and the Fabian Socialists next time we talk. And let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll be back with guests co-host 
Jason Goodman from Crowdsource of Truth on the backstory. from an empire of lies and just outside the matrix is a show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. Thanks so much to Jason Goodman being the co-host today. Great job with the professor and fantastic first-time appearance. Now, coming up this hour, we have Carmelo from New York. I, this is a story you know something about a little about, right, Jason? Yeah, Rod had shared it with me, this father who uh, intervened, prevented some gang violence. He's a hero. And we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320 on Backstory. I had a thought this morning, and it's in a sense obvious and not new, but in a sense, it's so basic that everyone forgets about it. So if I told you I was moving out of Paris, South Dakota, and you had never been here, yep. and you found out about it, and after a couple months, you called me and said, how's it going? And I mm-hmm. said, it's going great. And you might want to come out this weekend, Jason, because you know what they're doing downtown. They're having a big torch. They're having a big torch march. Uh oh! Wait a minute. What are you talking about? If I told, if I told you that, yeah, you'd say, uh oh, right. You, yeah. <laughs> and I said, no, no, no. Here's what happens. They have a, a local guy. He's he's dead, but he was in World War Two. He was a war criminal, and a lot of people around here in South Dakota. They're big fans of his. So they like to hold a giant picture of him and do a parade with torches in downtown Sioux right. Falls. Right. Does that sound like an event you want to attend? Uh, no, it sounds very much like a dirt and blood uh, Stepan Banderas kind of uh, Nazi march that I'm not going to go to. <laughs> well, let's say you never heard of Stepan Bandera, but you oh, just yeah. knew... I told you, I just told you this. We do a torch well, march war every criminal. year. No, not for a war criminal. Why do we want to celebrate a war criminal? Well, I say, I say people in South Dakota, they see their identity as intertwined with him. In hmm. fact, they say as a sign of being a South Dakotan, identifying with this guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, if I were there, I would want to observe it, but it's not the type of thing, like if you told me there was some kind of big 3D festival going on and your brother was going and we're going to go and talk about animation and do all this stuff that you know I'm interested in, I might travel for that. But that does not sound like something that would attract my attention, what you're describing. <laughs> that sounds something I would well, avoid, mostly. Now I'm going to play a quote from Joe Biden. It's clip one. Okay. This quote doesn't make sense unless you build a Nazi thing into it. So right. so listen to this. It's going to sound innocuous, 
But if you really right. think about what he's saying, ask yourself that. So let's play clip one. Joe Biden talking about Ukraine. Hit it. I believe what Putin's attempt to do is eliminate the identity of Ukraine. The identity. He can't occupy it, but he can try to destroy its identity. He has to pay, and Russia has to pay a long-term price for that in terms of the, of the uh, sanctions that have been imposed. So, so I'm going to repeat it, sort of. He's saying Putin is trying to get rid of the identity of Ukrainians. You heard him, right? Yeah. Now, it sounds innocuous on the face of it. It sounds like if if I were to if I were to invading force were coming to New York or South Dakota, pick any place, and you were to get yeah. rid of the identity of New Yorkers, what does that mean? What does it mean actually to get rid of the identity of New Yorkers? Uh, to me, that would mean removing the diversity and individuality of each member of New York, which collectively everyone's beautiful individuality makes this place. So if they tried to say everybody has to be the same and you're going to do this, whether you want to do it or not, that would be eliminating the identity of New York. Yes. Now, what it means in Ukraine is the Ukrainian nationalist identity. That's Bandera. Yeah. Is a racial identification as pure Slavs. Right. They view themselves as pure Slavs. And that's not an identity that I think Ukrainians should have. You follow me? Getting well, rid of to their the identity. extent that it alienates other people, I agree. Yes, we don't want that. Right. And and, and they view themselves as the only it's it's like the pure Aryan thing. And the fact yeah. That Ukraine and every I see, I see lots of people quibble about, oh, they're not really Nazis in Ukraine. They do a t- torch march every year, all around the country, not just in one city, not just in Kiev, but in Lviv, all over the country. They do these torch marches. Do you have any? Does Staten Island do a torch march? Brooklyn. I never knew anything about the torch march at all until you told me about it. And then that whole thing in um, wherever, South Carolina or whatever, where they did one there. So I've never seen one. And they, when one happened in Charlottesville, everyone freaked the F out about it. Right. It was the worst thing in the world. Now, Now the, in Ukraine, the torch marches happen every year is protected by the police. The governments hmm. help them do it. Wow. Right. And so just the torch march, let me say this, that's not normal. Well, and you know what, Lee? CNN says, August 2017, white nationalists use tiki torches to light up Charlottesville. But in, I mean, in Ukraine, oh no. That's a sovereign democracy. We gotta leave them alone. If they do it here, it's white nationalists. It's weird, right? Yes, and even and Biden, when he's talking about protecting their identity, what he's talking about is the Nazi identity. That's what he's yeah. talking about. 
And Do you think he knows that or is he so brain dead? No, I think he knows that. Because here's what I'm saying. Uh, and this is the reason I'm emphasizing these church marches. This is not normal. I not only don't know a city, a state, a county, I don't know another freaking country. Name a country, Jason, where you hear they have a torch march every year and it's accepted as normal. And I mean, isn't the purpose of it to celebrate the dead Nazi? Yes, to celebrate yeah. Bandera. But the reason they live torches, it's not like a fun, it's designed to be intimidating, right? Yeah. Well, and they burned so, down that whole, uh, whatever it was, that government office. And so let me say this about Ukraine. It's a noxious, disgusting country. And people don't like I to say agree. that. Yeah, I think I agree. But, but any country that accepts this torch march as defining their national identity doesn't have an identity that should be protected. And we know what's happened. Because of this national identity, they've, you know what they're doing? Practically, one example, and this is the least, this is the most benign example. They banned the Russian language right. in Ukraine. That's getting rid of identity, right? But yet Zelensky speaks Russian. What's with that? They They don't... They don't want to promote it. And and he came in. Of, of course, there's contradictions there because, in fact, Ukraine, there was no independent country of Ukraine before the Bolshevik Revolution. That's true. But this identity that he's talking about preserving, he definitely knows what he's talking about. He's been dealing with these ethnic Ukrainians. But That's it's true. even if I look, don't look at the Nazi part, just look at the torch march part. That's weird. Yeah. Right? And it's well, I mean, it's mostly weird, weird for what it stands for. Yeah. Well, but, but even if you didn't know what it stands for, if you saw people gathering up torches to do a march in the street, You'd go. It does what seem the a little Frankenstein's on? castle. Yeah, it's a little weird. It is <laughs> right, and it's it's, and I'm pointing it out that it's weird because it's so weird that's the least weird thing, right? Hmm. The weirdness. Well, I mean, that, I think you're right. I, it's just so it's so foreign from anything that it's almost difficult to register in my mind how weird it is, but you're right. It's a, it's a peaceful protest, but everybody has a flaming torch. So at any moment it could erupt into a gigantic blaze that engulfs the city. And I don't know how peaceful it is. Right. Exactly. Because no, and because what we know is these people have killed 13,000 people in eight years. These people yeah, have right. murdered people in Odessa. Right. These yeah. people, even now, how weird, how psychotic is it? It's like the film The Purge. You've, you've seen that film, right? I'm aware of it, yeah. Yeah, so it's like The Purge. Have you seen the people who've been taped? Yeah. Utility poles? The poles, yes. Right, and they taped them to utility poles. 
it's a high tech form of, I guess, lynching. Yeah. But done with packing material. Done with stuff <laughs> you can get at the U-Haul store. Right. How psychotic is that? I've never seen anything like that ever in any country. Yeah, well, I mean, to me, the, the most psychologically disturbing aspect is how many people in the United States and Europe have just accepted these claims with no evidence that actually contradict evidence, contradict logic, and they're just adamant, yeah, great idea, send $40 million worth of weapons into a war zone for a country that ideologically we should not be supporting. Or put their hashtag, put their avatar... Put a flag, yeah, the flag in that country. in the Twitter, right. Yeah, all of that. People don't know what they're supporting. You, it's really. But they don't know that we, you say that, but no one denies, no one's saying, well, that footage of the torch march is all made up. What they're saying is. But they just won't discuss well, it. They just won't discuss it. Right. As soon as you see a person taped to a poll, you should say. I don't want this flag in my avatar. Yeah. Well, the and, thing that I'm seeing from people is they say, oh, no, that's fake. That's Russian propaganda. Don't believe that. And you, you ask a Ukrainian person, I've asked three Ukrainian people, what's with this Azov battalion? Are they Nazis? Each of them says, oh, come on. They don't answer. They don't say, yes, it is or no, it's not. Yeah, that's a common misconception. Nothing like that. They just say, oh, come on. Which is that's a that's a mechanism right there. That's a that's a tactic to avoid the conversation. And also, then, what's the point of the torch march? Right. And and, and why did they make I'm it a saying, holiday? His birthday. I'm right. I'm saying it's so plainly uh, weird. John McCain and Lindsey Graham in 2016 were there on January 1st, Bandera's birthday. Wow. And I'm just pointing out the psychotic weirdness of it, unique among countries in the world. If you heard the Bahamas was doing torch marches, you wouldn't want to go to the Bahamas. It's I mean, unique the thing among, that comes to mind is like a luau, is what I'm thinking of. But they're not doing a luau. <laughs> right. Right. And so people consider that. And consider what Joe Biden's talking about by identity. 202-521-3020. Tarif, you're on the air. Thank you for taking my call, Lee. Um, first, I'd like to say free June and signs. I have five quick comments. Hungary. Um, in Hungary, Obama declared state emergency because of the economy. It, I mean, he's doing it because... Pretty soon, the EU going to hit them with sanctions because they're not going along with the sanctions against Russia. Russia is amassing 20,000 troops in the Izum province of uh, East Ukraine around the uh, Donbass region to um, go after the um, Ukrainian troops there. Um, <clears throat> also, the um, Ukrainian is going is pushing a no surrender, like a, a bill for deserters and people that's surrendering, where if they, if they surrender, you know, the government will basically put them to debt if they surrender, so it's like a no surrender. Wow. Yep. And um, <clears throat> the, the, uh, the, uh, the British is 
want to send warships in the Black Sea to basically escort cargo ships to go pick up the grain from southern Ukraine. Well, they might have um, bad, uh, you know, consequences with that. But yeah, that's yeah. what I want to say. Thank you, Lee. You know, real quick, yes. there's breaking news. There was a terrible shooting in Texas, 14 students and one teacher dead in an elementary school shooting. Is that near San Antonio? It, um, well, Rob Elementary School in Texas. Yes. I'm just seeing this. I'd heard about that. I had not heard the, the numbers. 14 dead, you're saying? Yeah, you veiled Texas. Yes, it's near San Antonio. And I heard there's Salvador a shooting. Ramos. Yeah. But I had not heard any death toll as we went on air. So that's horrible. Yeah. And elementary I, school students. Yeah, and apparently the well, look, well I'm sure we'll have more on it tomorrow on the backstory. When these yeah. things are breaking, there's a yeah. big we, fog of war and a lot of confusion. Right. And so these numbers could go up or down mm. or change because, you know, it, it, it just, it's very hard to tell. Usually the numbers go up. Yeah. yeah. But 14 is a very high death toll. Yeah. And targeting an elementary school, I mean, uh, yeah. Now, there, there is also a quote that I have. We'll, we'll play this next clip. This next clip is Joe Manchin. Now, you've heard of Joe Manchin, right? West Virginia, right? Yeah. Right. And he's, he's attacked by Democrats as a moderate. Hmm. His sin is that he's not left enough for a lot of Democrats. Yeah, he's, he's a Maserati of Democrat. Right. But I want you to hear this moderate on foreign policy. Let's play the clip and see how moderate Joe Manchin is. Let me speak about Ukraine first, but Putin, Putin's war on Ukraine and Ukraine's determination, resolve and the sacrifices they've made for the cause of freedom has united the whole world. But it's united us as Senate and Congress, I think, like nothing I've seen in my lifetime. I think we're totally committed to supporting Ukraine in every way possible, as long as we have the rest of NATO and the free world helping. I think we're all in this together. And I am totally committed as one person to seeing Ukraine to the end with a win, not basically resolving in some type of a treaty. I don't think that is where we are and where we should be. Can I just follow up and ask you what you mean by a win for Ukraine? I mean, basically moving Putin back to Russia and hopefully getting rid of Putin. Woo. Right. Calling for a regime change in Russia. And what the yeah. hell is he talking about freedom? He doesn't know. Yeah. I heard a report today at NPR, and they were talking about how the war is going. And they said, and think about this, because I'm going to ask, there'll be a quiz afterwards, Jason. They said, in terms of will, Ukraine is winning. Like Ukraine has more will than Russia. What does that mean? (laughs) It's stupid. 
I no, mean, but, anybody but, uh, defending a spot is going to be more willful than the person invading it because they're just, but the, but the invader has so many more resources and they're just like, whatever, we're going to flatten you. I would say in Mariupol, the willpower battle, if this is a staring contest, for instance, Russia won. Lost. Exactly. <laughs> you're right. Russia showed more will, correct? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, that's all just semantics. They're just making, that's just talking points for the news. More will. What did they do? Go and poll everybody in Ukraine? It's just all made up. And when you look at videos from John Mark Dugan and Patrick Lancaster and the, the small number of Western journalists who are in Russia, in Ukraine, going into the war zones, what they show and the citizens that they speak to are basically the exact opposite of what we are seeing on the news here. Yes, and and I'm expecting to hear a report from the British press. This just in from the Daily Mail. Ukraine leads in the popular mojo category. Ah, yes. They have more mojo <laughs> than Russia, right? Well, he's definitely given more speeches at, like, Cannes Film Festival and the Grammys. I mean, how ridiculous is that, Lee? They're under this incredible pressure of this war where at first they were saying Zelensky was worried about snipers. But he's got time to book appearances on Le Croisette and appear at the Cannes Film Festival by video. And the Gra I mean, this is just the he's an actor. And there it is. He's acting. That was Hitler's problem. Hitler did not <laughs> take into account the power of good public relations. Huh. Hitler should have made a few appearances at those big Hollywood premieres. If he was posing with Clark Gable or whoever. Right, right. Slap somebody Judy at Garland. the Oscars, you know, mix it up a little bit. <laughs> right. Because Russia's winning the war. Russia's yeah. the biggest battle, the most substantive battle of the entire war is Mariupol, and Russia won decisively. They won, and then they kept winning and forced the surrender of close to 3,000 Ukrainian troops who we were told had a lot of willpower. Right. But they didn't, and by the way, the trials of those Azov Italian people is going to be held in the Donetsk People's Republic, the DPR. Oh. They're holding the trials there. That's what they've announced. And I huh. think it's good that that's where the trials are happening. Because there was some talk they might be in Moscow. And I'm, I'm fine uh -huh. with wherever. But I think it's better it's in the DPR. More fair. Yeah. Right. And also closer to where they did the wrong. Exactly. Now, Lee, here's another question about trials. There was, there was a lot of reporting this morning. They had the family on CNN or MSNBC or something of this Marine who was arrested, according to reports, for fighting with police officers. Putin even discussed this guy and said that he fought with police officers, and that's why he was in jail. But the family is saying, oh, no, he was a political prisoner of Russia. What do you know about that? Or do you, that Marine who was recently released? Well, there's a couple of things. There's that guy 
Then there's also the WNBA star. Right. You heard about her who had the weed. Yeah, the but she's not a political cartridges. prisoner. You break the law. I mean, if you bring weed into Singapore, it's the death penalty. So guess what? Don't bring weed to Singapore. Right. And no laws of where you're going. Right. Yeah. Americans have this strange, even Jack Posobiec was given a report from the World Economic Forum yesterday that he was arrested on the street for, you know, doing some video report. And he's talking about the First Amendment. Switzerland doesn't care about the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects Americans in America. You have no first. You are subject to the laws of Switzerland when you go to Switzerland. You're subject to the laws of Russia when you go to Russia. And people who disrespect the laws of other countries and think that they should be treated differently because they're American, frankly, deserve to go to jail. They're very stupid. Yeah. And 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 then, you know, they were Jack was someone was filming him getting detained and questioned and oh. was told to stop filming them by the woman there. And right. she, she said, why? She said, well, in Switzerland, you don't have a right to film anybody on the street. There you go. That's the reason. <laughs> right. And so. But, you know. A lot of times. If you. On the other hand, I, I think Jack's audience doesn't care. Yeah. You follow me? They don't care what the law in Switzerland is. Yeah, it's just go Jack and everything. So, you know, I, I get that. And, and you know, we got to give him credit that it's interesting to observe the World Economic Forum has its own police force. I, I did not know that. I would have thought just the local whatever city, you know, they're in Davos that they'll – it's an interesting thing that he revealed by that. But I just don't like this attitude of talking about the First Amendment when you go to some other country. Just like I don't like these UN – you know, I get it. That when they're in the UN, that's their little sovereign territory, like it's an embassy or something. But there was some UN event going on where some guy dressed in a UN uniform was standing on like Second Avenue telling me what to do. And I said to him, who exactly are you telling me you're not even from America? And he got all upset and he had a real heavy accent. And I was like, listen, man, you're an invader as far as I'm concerned. Don't tell me what to do. So I'm as pissed off at that guy as somebody going to another country breaking the law there should, you know. When I was it. over in Lebanon in 2013, I I wanted to take a picture of a church. I was by a church and I wanted to take pictures of it. And a local Lebanese soldier with a machine gun told me not to. Do you know what I did? You listened to him. I right, because <laughs> that's a, the thing you do and I machine didn't do a video and complain the, about right machine right. guns are I definitely just, more potent than the first amendment <laughs> right and and this is a place he just told me to stop yeah. and I realized that in Lebanon maybe they're taking it more seriously they don't want someone taking pictures because it might be a terrorist or whatever Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I didn't whine it's about my First Amendment rights or do a video about it. I yeah. just shut up yeah. about it and and went and took pictures of something else. 
But exactly. when we come back, we'll talk to Carmelo about a situation confronting, is it safe gang. to say gang members? Yeah, yeah. They were young, but they're a gang. I mean, there was going to be a beatdown if they got to it. And let's do that after this short break on The Backstory. Back in the backstory, 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Jason Goodman from Crowdsources Earth is our co-host today, doing an able job. Jason, great yeah. job. Thank you, Lee. And so we have Carmelo I, on. I forgot to ask you an important question if we have a minute before he comes on. What? Go ahead. Kissinger this morning said that, or I guess he's in Davos or whatever, that Ukraine should surrender this territory to Russia and that the diplomatic whatever, and people are going crazy. Why is Kissinger saying that? He's a war hawk. The, the New York Times, I think, I, I can only guess, he's not going to reveal his motivation. The New York Times recently came out and said the same thing, basically. And hmm. I think what you're saying is some people, Kissinger may be many things, but he's not dumb. It's obvious that Ukraine has lost this war. Yeah. Already. And I'm just yeah. going to be blunt. Ukraine has lost. There's no way Ukraine's going to win. And yeah. even sending the money and the weapons, Russia's not going to let those weapons get in a place where we're going to do any good. And the people need to be trained on them and so on. So I yeah. think the writing is on the wall. And recently, Russia has had more advances in places like Lima. They're holding on to places like Curzon. We had, talk, talk about who we had in the show, the Patreon show with us, Jason. Well, they, yeah, that weekend. was John Mark Dugan. And he, he wants me to go to Russia and then go with him to Ukraine, which I'm not sure... I'm going to do that. But John is a U.S. Marine and a former police officer from the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. And he is in Moscow. He is a software developer and a YouTuber. And he has been embedded with the Russian military going into Ukraine. And as you were saying before, you know, these Azovstal holdouts surrendered. John was with a Russian military detachment that entered one of their headquarters. So anybody who says this is Russian propaganda, how did John get this footage? He went right in there. I mean, it's clearly a Ukrainian. They have the Azov logos and um, American military equipment all around inside this place. So these guys are confirming well, you might want to take him what's going the, on. You might want to take him out of his offer to go because, let's face it, it sounds dangerous to go into Ukraine. But yeah. you're in New York already. It's so true. you're already in a dangerous situation. It's true. And, and now I'm contemplating. Welcome, Carmelo. Hello, Carmelo. Hello. How you doing? Thank you very much. How well. are you doing? So our producer, Rod, pointed out your story. 
So let me have you tell your story. Where do you start the story? But before you do, Carmelo, Carmelo, you are a hero dad. I want people to understand that, how what you did is so courageous and dangerous. Please tell everybody about it. Um, sure. Um, well, well, thank you for that, um, for that compliment. Um, I'm just trying to be, you know, the best father that I can be um, with, with my experiences and how I was brought up. Um, but the story begins, um, this happened, um, I haven't spoke too much in detail about this story. Um, so, uh, forgive me. I don't have, um, uh, like exact dates, but this happened, um, close to last summer, last summer. So I was very surprised that the video went viral and it just, um, like kind of blew up out of nowhere. And, um, you know, I, um, you know, my reason for putting up the video, it wasn't, um, you know, to go viral or to try to create revenue. I was just um, trying to save data off my phone and my desktop. You know, I just always like creating videos of my family and then I, I throw them on some kind of social media because, uh, you know, my desktop, my phone will get too full. But um, anyway, to the story, it happened like about last summer um, and uh, we moved, me, my wife, and um, my, th- my three children, we moved um, from the Bronx and um it was it was a huge upgrade like it took us like 8 years you know um to to get here so it, it it's kind of um it's it's kind of uh, a funny feeling when when some people see the video I'm like you know I can't believe you live there you should move your kids out of there um the actual neighborhood that we live in the actual community we live in is is very nice and um um Surprisingly, um, you know, you got a few of my favorite, um, you know, um, celebrities that that stay in this actual community. Um, we're only a few blocks away from um, Billionaires Row, but you know, um, spread out throughout Manhattan, you have certain housing, um, apartment housings. You know, what you know, what the hood consider, you know, projects. You just say projects. You know, um, government subsidized. Yeah, correct. So. Um, so we moved from um, not an actual project, but it's 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 um we you know when you cut the the term neighborhood short to hood, we were saying you know it's 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 not you know good out there you know this this is problem. Yeah. So we we come from a hood in the Bronx, and um you know the the youth the the kids talk fast, so word gets around fast because. Where my kids go to school and where the project kids go to school, they're different school zones, but it's 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 I don't know it's weird how they separate it, but we exactly right across the street. What splits us is West End Avenue, um, going up a certain way on Manhattan. It turns like into 11th or whatever. If it's easy, easy 11th or West End Avenue, we're by the borderline. So that's the only right. between the, the the neighborhood. Um, so when we moved into the neighborhood, um, word got around that my kids, you know. Kids, you know, speak about, you know, you know, have conversations in school and words get around. And the kids from across the street found out that my sons, um, you know, moved from a neighborhood that they didn't like, but, you know, which, you know, they consider as ops, you know, um, enemies, you know, you know, um, you know, not allies, you know, opposition. So uh-huh. that's, you know, a big term they, you know, the, the, the kids use out here in the gangs, you know, if they're not, if, they're, if that's not your, you know, saying your homie or your boy or whatever, that's ops. So my sons was looked at like ops, you know, opposition and, um, you know, um, music, um, the hip hop, um, 
music, um, it's not its own genre, but, you know, the, the drill music that is most popular with the young kids and with the gangs, you know, it, it has a lot to do with, you know, what's going on in the city right now with, with all these um, murders and crime going on with these young kids. So I, I knew, you know, when things was getting bad that I had to, um, you know, quickly get involved because, you know, too many kids is, is shooting at, at young ages, you know, dying. You know, the one of the most popular ages you hear is like 12. Um, so when, my, when we moved here, I, um, my, I found out, you know, just keeping like ear, you know, to what's going on in my house or, or when my sons are talking or, you know, just keeping an eye out. Um, you know, I quickly knew that there was static. Something was wrong. Um, so we gave them heads up. You know, we spoke to them. And uh, my oldest son, um, before that, I took that video, my oldest son um, had knives pulled out on him. So that's what he said in the video. And in and, and parts of the video, you know, he said, you know, this kid said he was going to rip my face off. Um so he was, so my son was bringing up something that happened weeks prior, you know, just saying that basically saying, you know, you guys are starting, you know, the situation. So, um, the older kids, the ones that were like 16, 17, 18, they were, you know, um, I guess giving orders to the ones that were 14 or 15 or just, you know, um, backing up their decisions of walking around, coming to, um, across the street to our, to the nicer neighborhood and, you know, um, just, just starting a, a beef, you know. Um, they would yell stuff from across the street, you know, stuff was going like that, you know, for a few days, for a couple of weeks. Um, and, uh, you really see in the video, you get the vibe that these kids wanted to start a fight. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't about, um, my son, my son, my son came to me. Um, so, so the beginning of the, before I started recording, my son came upstairs with two of his friends. He had tears in his eyes. He said, they, they, they took my bike. I'm, so I'm like, what? Who took your bike? So it's so um, my wife is is hearing, you know, my son tell the story. My oldest son, um, he's going crazy once he finds out. He's like, they pulled the straps out, you know, they pulled the guns out there. Um, they had fanny packs on, and they pulled guns out their fanny packs and told me to get off the bike. So um, my son, um, he he went, and he wanted to like, you know, pick up weapons and stuff. And I told, I had to make, you know, I had to put whatever he was grabbing down in his hands um and he stormed out the house so um my sons left and i went to this quickly i had to quickly think i was like shoot i gotta go i went to go get my the bike ready get the camera ready because um you know i was upset i knew that i'm going over there and um i just thought of it just like you know police officers they wear body cameras nowadays you know what i mean it's that's just well, that's what i was going to ask you did you have a sense that having it on camera would reduce the likelihood that these kids would take violent action because they know you're recording them correct i needed i needed i, I needed them to at least hesitate you know right gonna have a chance good decision very good decision so, um, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I had only, but you know, a couple of seconds of a couple of minutes at tops to, to think. And I stormed out of there and I was like, man, I got to reach these kids before my oldest son reaches them first, you know, and something goes, yep. because my son, I know my son doesn't have a gun on him, And, um, you know, I really, um, God. whatever he tried to leave the house with. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I got over there and I, I quickly noticed, you know, the the bunch, and um, it was crazy because my my sons and his friends left first, 
they were highly upset. And then I tried to, you know, um, but, but on my way there, because, you know, with video stars from inside my apartment, and I, I go all the way to the park, and I, I just, um, that was my first guess, you know, the hottest spot always when you go into the projects where, you know, most of the, the, the young is or where they grew up is going to be close by the basketball courts. So that's why I rode by and I saw them and I noticed the bike and I approached them. And, they, you know, they were young. They were young and they, they, they quickly, I saw their faces, they hesitated. And the older, the older one that was there, um, I don't know how old he was. I don't know. He was, he was in the teenager, but he might have been younger than me. But it looks like I caught them just in time where they were handing the bike off to somebody else. So he, so when I, when I mentioned, hey, that's my son's bike, you know, the, the, the oldest one that was there was like, oh, I got your bike for you. This is my bike. And I was just like, all right. You know, I quickly just said, all right. Because yeah. they were giving it up. I'm not going to argue. Oh, what do you mean? You know, right. ask some questions. Right. Start bringing it, you know what I mean? I don't, I didn't want those guns coming out. That's that's the main thing. I want to. And then when my son pulled up, I got even more worried now because when I first pulled up and they said all right, and I told them I was my bike, and they quickly was like, oh okay. Uh, I, I had a, a quick sense of relief, but then that worry came right back up as soon as I, my son pulled up. You know, as um, you know, like he did, and I was like, oh geez, I know, I know he's still hot. You know. Yeah, he was pissed off. So. So, so Carmelo, let me ask one question. Do you think these kids were used to an adult approaching him? Does that happen very often, do you think? Um, or are they surprised that an adult came at them and said something? I believe they were, you know, they were definitely, from the looks on their faces, they were definitely surprised. Um, they yeah. didn't um, think that would happen. They didn't think anybody probably would. Uh, they probably just got away with doing stuff like that and running back to the projects. And, and you know, a, a lot of people don't. And do you think do you think most adults wouldn't approach them because they'd be scared? Be honest. Um, Is it fear? They didn't. If, or just. If it was an, another parent and this happened to another kid that lived outside the projects. Yeah. Yes. Most likely. They would not have done it. They would not. And honestly, I was scared for you. And also because when your son showed up, he was hot. And and I could tell that you were sort of – there was this balance that you had where, you know, your son felt emboldened that his dad is here and his dad is taking over. And your son is still just a kind of a young guy. He might not have fully appreciated. I think when you're young and you look up to your dad in the way that your son obviously does – you have this sense that your father is Superman. And when Superman is here now, I can be tough with these big kids. And it was dangerous. You did a good job of calming your own son down as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I got a little bit worried about that. I was, you know, I was about to tell him, you know, listen, your, your, your dad can't box bullets, man. You, you, you said you're escalating, calm down. And that was true because I, I detected that he felt, I don't think a lot of the kids that you are confronting have, a figure like you. I think this, the camera, I think was the tipping point that, that got them thinking, wait a minute, we don't want to go to jail. And when they saw a father come out and protect his son against this crew, I don't think they knew how to deal with that psychologically. They were, I think, sad and jealous that your son has someone who would risk his life like that. You just froze that crowd, man. It was amazing. Thank you. Yes, I, I agree. Um, I, I read um, comments on TikToks and people joke, people um, that recognize him, people that came from the projects 
or recognize the gang where it was um, making, um, you know, fun of him, clowning in the comments a little bit about, you know, bringing up his father. And so um, just based off the, the comments that I read and the jokes and what they said, like mentioning his father, you know, he's obvious, you know, known to be a violent guy as well, but also known for not, you know, being around his, you know, his kids, I guess, and bringing them up the right way. So, so what happened? Describe, describe what happened, though. Your son shows up, he's a little hot, you're there, and you're confronting him, they, they give me back the bike. Not confronting exactly, but saying that's my bike. So what happened after that? Tell us more. Um... So they they agreed to give back the bike, um, and then you know my my when my son arrived, you know he was angry. So then uh, you know they tried to get angry back, but um, they uh, you know my my son um, was asked for a one on one fight. So you know um, he asked for the one on one. I was like, all right, you, you guys, my son, you know, if you guys want a one on one, let's do it like like men. They 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 froze up. Nobody said they wanted the one on one. So I was, you know, I said that's it. There you go. Oh, then it's no yep. beef. <laughs> Just break it off. No problems. Um, you know, they, a little bit argument went back and forth between the leader and my son. Um, my son was upset, and he was, you know, the uh, the leader was like, "Oh, don't you, um, you know, touch one of my guys," you know. You know, his little soldiers, the younger ones that he had um, rolling around the streets, you know, uh, days prior with knives, you know, threatening the kids from, from, um, you know, the community we live at, you know, across the street. So, um, you know, I told, I was saying, you know, don't worry, he's not going to touch them. Snow beef, let's squash it. Um, Carmelo, there's been so much controversy in the past two years. You know, my whole entire life, I have always felt like race relations in the United States seem to be improving, certainly as compared to, you know, 1990 compared to 1960, I think race relations in the United States were better. And the past two years, it seems to be going in the opposite direction. And what you were dealing with is everybody there that I saw in the video, everybody was black, right? So these are black kids intimidating your son. It's not a racial thing. What can we do as New Yorkers to protect, you know, there's fathers out there, black, white, whatever race, who one thing different in the scenario that you were in, and it could have been multiple people in the hospital or the coffin, what can we do to turn this situation around? Um, it's a hard question. Well, I know it's kind of it's kind of hard, but it, it's it's easy and harder at the same time because when you think about it, like I can find ways to to speak about it because of you know my city and where we're living at. But when you when you yeah. when you reach a different state and different towns, when you go from city to suburb, you know it's it's a little bit it's a little bit different. So it's. It, um, I could answer it, but it, it wouldn't really um, be a well, like, rounded out answer that that would work everywhere. You know what I mean? But well, let me let me change the question a bit. How have things with your son and these kids in the neighborhood? Has anything changed? Has anything improved? What what's happened since this bike incident? Um. Wow. Well, a few things have happened since since this incident. Um. 
Um, I say the big thing, but um, but it's not it's not it's not race um related because you know that side. If you look back in the videos, it's on their side. It looks like it's all black kids, but you know they have a Spanish kid on their side that had braids. On uh, okay. on my two sons, you know they they they're um you know, uh, have more of a white complexion, but they have black friends. It wasn't a, a black against white thing or black against Spanish thing. Right. I did mention, right. you know, I just wanted to open their eyes and I said, listen, black and brown stick together. You know, that's right. what I mentioned in the video, just making them open their eyes and recognize, you know, it's kind of like you looking in the mirror, you know what I mean? We, we, you know, this is how it is in New York City. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, don't, you don't you don't do that. You know what I mean? We we going through the same struggles. We 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 go to the same schools. We get as we shop in the same supermarkets. You know we eat mm-hmm. the same food. We go through the same problems. You know. Um, yeah. I, that's what I was just really. That was my reason for you know bringing it up and saying in the video. But it wasn't that there was a a, a big you know race issue or, or anything like that in this community. It's not it's not like that at all because. Some of the, yeah. when I did my own research and finding out about the leader and the gang, you know, when I started finding out, um, you know, their names as artists and, and putting up music videos, you know, you see some of their videos, you mostly see Puerto Rican or Dominican kids, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's a well, uh-huh. it's, it's well mixed, you know, sometimes some buildings have more than others, you know what I mean? Some buildings get along, others, sometimes it's, it's blocks, sometimes it's, it's neighborhoods, sometimes it's just... Um, yeah, it's, it's it's different. New York is so New York City is so huge, but for the most part, you know, everybody you know gets along and gets together. Everybody. But you said something interesting. These kids have music videos that they're putting out. They have aspirations. So what? Why? Why can't there be some way? And I mean, it shouldn't be falling on you as an individual father to solve the problems in the neighborhood. But you know, when these kids, maybe if there was some way for them to have a creative outlet or maybe even earn money doing something that they like, maybe they wouldn't have to resort to terrorizing the neighborhood kids and stealing bikes. It sounds like he was handing it off to a fence. Maybe these kids get money from stealing bikes. Right. But, the um, you know what, they really, they really, they, um, they really didn't want the bikes like that, to be honest. They, I mean, just to terrorize your son, but they not fun of it. Right. They just did that. Just, just, you know, as like a get back or just, you know, just, um, mm-hmm. started problems, but they, um, nobody from those projects I have seen, um, you know, that are, that are about that bike life, you know, outside, you know, beat BMX, doing wheelies, doing ride outs, meetups, um, you know, uh, creating videos and footages like that. Nobody's, um, doing that lifestyle just just my sons over here just from in these few blocks from what i've seen um it's just been my sons and a couple of their friends um so i know they didn't really want the bikes for, you know for personal use or anything they probably just wanted to make money off of it but um right right they have nothing better to do and and, and with the music and the influence with, with with the drill um that style of rap that that was um created and Chicago by Chief Keef, um, you know that style. It just um, it, it 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 just uh, migrated over here um, because of the gang culture, and um, mm. yeah, once something gets hot and trendy, you know, especially with the help of uh, uh, Snapchat and TikTok and stuff like that, you know, they create dances, certain videos to the music in the background. It's just it's, it's very influential, you know what I mean? And whoever. Mm are just putting music out and stuff like that. They're the ones to blame because 
if 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 they're creating a certain music style and if it's not good for the neighborhood, it's not meant to do good, then it shouldn't be put out, right? It's a lot of the owners and people that, you know, on, on whether it's, you know, radio or internet, you know, there's a lot of, you know, big wigs out there with, with power and it's not coming from, um, you know, my communities or none of these kids' communities. You know what I mean? So, so there's people that are in power that, that, that can choose what's, you know, what what's you know good and what's bad you know what i mean and they know that music is yes. so you know the now so uh, Car- carmelo what have you learned from this not just the incident but from people's reaction since this video went viral what have you learned from this i learned from it um <laughs> that 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 my idea with with cameras definitely work um yeah people when when cameras are rolling it it it, it definitely um, it helps, it helps, it helps, it helps when somebody sees, you know, you know, sometimes people, you know, put themselves in check, you know? Yep. You see it in their eyes. They look at the camera, they think, Ooh, that guy's probably live streaming and I'm going to go right to jail if I brain him here in the street. Right. Right. And that's what, all I got to do is, is, is mention, you know, when people see, um, cameras around and everything like that. Yeah. It's, there's so many, and, and and if it gets mentioned, you know, sometimes you you know to just you know, I'm saying the right words at the right time, you know, and they some some people you know snap their senses. Yeah. Well, congratulations, man. You really are a role model to fathers, other fathers, and gang members can learn a lesson from this. And, and you're what's the a best great way to your son. And Jason, what's the best way we can tell people how they can watch this video? What Carmelo film, if they want to? Where is it, Carmelo? Because Rod sent it to me. I'm not. You got it on a YouTube channel, right? And my YouTube channel is um, bx underscore mello two point oh two point zero. People can check it. Yeah. Check it there. Yeah. Hello. Great. Good job, Carmelo. Really appreciate it, and thank you for coming on the show and talking to us about it. Yeah, I appreciate um the invitation and um. I wish um, all you guys the best, and uh, thank you. Likewise. Yeah, yeah, yeah stay great, safe there on the job, Upper Carmelo. West. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, Jason, how we talk about social media in one, you know, people like you and I use social media, or you, you doing your videos. This is really, a, you know, I thought it was interesting, too. He was talking about how the kids are using TikTok or whatever, to do their own rap and and dances and everything. But yeah. he's pointing out there's some negative sides to that, right? Well, I think we got to learn more about, you know, this subgenre of drill, you know, rap. I, I'm not familiar with what drill hip-hop is exactly, but uh, what I understood Carmelo was telling us is that the, the the professional producers of that music and the themes, maybe it's bleeding into these self-made videos, but when the, I mean, you look at like Run DMC and LL Cool J in the early days of hip hop, it was very what people call soft, right? They're not talking about, you know, turning out hoes and killing people and stuff like that. And then we got the gangster rap later that had a lot of negative themes and a lot of, you know, not what I would consider role models to young people. And I don't know, I mean, I don't know enough about drill to comment on it, but it sounded like that's what Carmelo was saying, that it's reinforcing these negative themes and, and dangerous messages. 
And that's that's what I was getting at. Really, he really is just a different use of social media. Yeah. And that it's got positive sides and negative sides. But for yeah. you know, yeah, I never thought about it before. And yeah, there's a lot. It's there's a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And also, I think a lot of people who are worried about cameras everywhere, it's an interesting message to them as well. But great show, great job guest co-hosting my friend Jason Goodman from Crowdsource of Truth. We'll be back on Patreon on Saturday. Thanks to Carmelo, and thanks, Professor, in the first segment. Great show. We'll be back tomorrow on The Backstory. Backstory.